welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. In season three, we explore the tension between faith and experience and tease this out as a distinction between faith and relationship. This dovetails well with our value for intimacy with God and encourages us to explore what we can expect a relationship with God to mean for individuals and communities intentionally practicing the presence of God. This week, we're joined by Thomas J. Witt, a philosopher, theologian, and scholar who directs a doctoral program. Tom has authored a number of books such as God Cards and The Uncontrolling Love of God. Join us as we get to know Tom through his life story and just grapple a little bit with his thinking about God and the love of God. Thank you so much, uh, Thomas, for, 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 for joining us for this. I really appreciate the time and I appreciate your willingness to engage on topics that are both within your comfort zone and uh, with, with our propensity to poke a little bit of the personal story and the personal history and experience to perhaps even get you a little bit out of your comfort zone. It, it's hard to get me out of my comfort zone because it's so big and so wide that there's not many things that can make me feel uncomfortable. Challenge accepted. The gauntlet is laid. So Tom, you, you've just released another book. Your writing is fantastic, incredibly accessible. And I, I'm sure you end up with so many interviews about your book and your work. With your permission, is it possible to take a step back from that, just into your life and your journey and your experience of God itself? I'd be happy to do that. What is your background? And in your background, if you can, if you can just touch on your, your first noticeable, distinct awareness of or experience of God and, and what that was, and just your, your upbringing. Um, and, and I guess just the, the version of how you ended up being you know, the famous philosopher, theologian that, uh, that we privileged to have here tonight. <laughs> well, thanks for the compliment. But um, I grew up in a small farming community in uh, the state of Washington in the United States. My father was a school teacher, school counselor type. My mother was very entrepreneurial. She started lots of little businesses and shops, but was very involved in the church. And both of my parents served on the church board for 40 plus years. We were in a fairly small church. And so our family was in charge of all kinds of things. And so I grew up going to church all the time, singing Christian songs. Uh, my identity was as a Christian. I gave my heart to Jesus many times when I was younger. I think I was a kind of person who took things seriously. I had questions, but I also, I was um, eager to be authentic and uh, wrestle with my struggles and my temptations. And so uh, when I, th I don't know that I have a first recognition or perception of God, it just kind of was a part of the warp and woof of what it meant to be a part of the family. By the time I was high, in high school, I, you know, people knew me as a Christian in my little community, and I invited friends to my church. Uh, it was a very evangelically oriented church, uh, part of the what we call the holiness tradition, and I'm actually still an ordained elder in that tradition, in the Church of the Nazarene. My father had come from a Calvinist background, uh, Dutch Reformed. My mother grew up Pentecostal holiness. They had a fairly ecumenical view of things, so uh, having one particular denomination wasn't that important to them. I went to college thinking, well, at first I thought I might go into a media of some sort, television or radio, and then I switched to be a social work and psychology major for a couple of years, 
and finally ended up in religion because I just that was where my interest was and I figured I might as well get training in uh, theology and, and Bible. But a major point in my life occurred my senior year in college. I had been a person who took the Christian faith seriously, including evangelism. I did a lot of street witnessing, door-to-door -door witnessing. I was a part of a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, and I shared the four spiritual laws. I thought that, uh, you know, getting people to heaven was the most important thing, and so I needed to go out and tell people about Jesus. But uh, my senior year in college, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And it was in that course that the, for the first time, I really read some smart people who didn't believe in God or were from other faith traditions. And I discovered that the reasons I had for thinking that there was a God weren't very strong reasons. And um, in fact, I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting in the car, me turning to her and saying, I don't think I can believe in God anymore. Uh, she was preparing for ministry. I was preparing for ministry. And um, the grounds I had for thinking that God exists didn't make sense. Unlike perhaps some people who are in that scenario, for me, it was like intellectual reasons. I wasn't like, you know, mad at the church or my youth pastor didn't abuse me or I didn't think, you know, everybody was a hypocrite or I didn't want to, you know, sleep around and whatever, sin all the more, whatever. It was for me, it was intellectual issues. Because of that, I kept at the quest to try to make sense of life and whether or not there was a God. I eventually came to the place, it didn't take that long, but I, I eventually came to the place where I thought it was more plausible than not that there is a God. I wasn't certain, I'm not certain today. And um, there were two, two big reasons why I thought it was plausible that there's a God and still think there's, it's plausible to God. One, I, I felt like life had some kind of ultimate meaning, or at least I wanted life to have some ultimate meaning. And I couldn't make sense of that if there wasn't a ground or source of that ultimate meaning that most people call God. And secondly, I had these deep intuitions, and I still have them, that I ought to be a loving person that other people ought to love, that in some sense, love is the answer. And I couldn't make good sense of that intuition if there wasn't some kind of spring or source or ground for love that most people call God. And so those two things kind of brought me to the place where I said, you know, I am far from certain there's a God, but it seems like I've got reasons to think there is, and I'm going to now try to live my life and make better sense of things in light of those uh, reasons. Tom, that's, um, I mean, I, I, I really appreciate the, the kind of the amount of vulnerability to, to start with in the telling of your story, but I'm, I'm struck in the last 
few minutes that uh, you, you cover a lot of ground between that moment <laughs> Sorry. and the car. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated by this, by this space. And if I may ask, there's this moment you describe in the car, if I, if I heard you correctly, with the statement, and I'm not sure if there's a God. And then another moment at moving back to, to you know, it's, it's plausible that there is a God. Um, what, was, what was that initial moment like um, with that person as you, as, you, as you sort of brought that out? Had it been something that it had been sitting and fermenting for a while? Did it burst out? Was it a, a space of trust? How was it received? And then what was kind of the, the immediate ripples beyond that? Was there an expression within the, you know, you talked about being a Christian within the, within the community. I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about within immediate family as, as well as church. What was that like as you, as you made that statement and then working your way back to this plausibility position? I think I actually said it stronger than I'm not sure there's a God. I think I said, I don't believe in God anymore. So it was more of a declarative statement. My fiance, who's now my wife, handled it pretty well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I imagine so with that change. <laughs> <laughs> I think at that time, and probably even to a great extent today, she had a great deal of trust in me and my integrity, my quest for honesty. Yeah, so it wasn't a big tear in our relationship. I didn't go, you know, trotting around campus telling everybody I didn't believe God anymore. And this is before social media. So, you know, I wouldn't have put anything on social media at the time. But it was obvious to me that this represented some kind of a break with the religious communities I was in. And that tension with religious communities has continued even to this day. I, I, I graduated from college, and by the time I graduated, I'd come to this position where I thought it was plausible that God exists. And my theology was really simple. It was, I believe there's a loving God. I think Jesus is pretty cool, and I ought to love. <laughs> <laughs> I went to... Uh, interview for a position as a youth pastor in a large church and this pastor asked me about Jesus <laughs> and I sure. was I was honest with him <laughs> I just said yeah well I don't know if Jesus is God I don't know any of that sort of stuff I think he's really cool I want to be like him but I didn't get that job you know? didn't. <laughs> they didn't select oh, me <laughs> <man>. <laughs> Disappointing. yeah and when I eventually got a job as a youth pastor, you know, I, I was, I really struggled. I struggled because I, I felt like I was being duplicitous, not being honest. Uh, and I talked with my wife a lot about it. I said, you know, these people at this church, they've hired me to be their youth pastor. They think I affirm X, Y, Z, but I really don't. I only affirm X. Is it really being honest to be a pastor of a church when I don't share the beliefs that many people think I ought to have? In fact, I sent a, 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 a letter to my college uh, philosophy professor about this. 
and um, he had two pieces of advice. One was good and one was bad. The bad one was, he said, don't tell your wife about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I thought that was not only bad, but also a little too late. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that ship had sailed. <laughs> but the good advice he gave me was this. He said, uh, you know, maybe you should think about this in terms of not what, what you're about, but what the people need and uh, how you might help them in their own faith journeys come to maybe not what your position is, but in a, a positions that uh, could be helpful to them. And I thought, yeah, I think there's something to that. Probably if I was a dyed-in-the-wool atheist at the time, I probably would have walked away. But I did believe in God, and I did think I could say some things that would help people in the congregation. And so I ended up staying at that church until I moved away for graduate school. And that tension that you talk about earlier, Tom, was that a, you know, part of the reason I ask, let me sort of lay that out first, is we get such a wide variety of experience from people who speak with us through deconstruction and then responses from listeners, even around there's just this massive spectrum of experience when people go through deconstruction. And some of it is this very overt. I'm thinking of a, a cartoon I saw today. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the naked pastor, David Hayward's cartoon yes. work. And his yeah, April yeah. Fool cartoon today <laughs> is one sheep saying to a group of sheep, hey guys, I'm questioning my beliefs. And then in the next um, block, all the other sheep have fainted. And he says, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, it's April Fools, but it's 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 sometimes this very overt kind of what are you doing? We're going to sit you down, you know, talk you through it, kind of save you through it. Sometimes it's it's very subtle, just being pushed off to the sides. Sometimes it's an internal journey. I think the deconstructor is projecting in some way just the sense of of tension within themselves. You know, you you talk about this question about duplicitousness. How did, how did that play out for you in terms of that tension? How was your experience there? On campus, within churches, family? What, what was that sense as you, as you used that word? Well, I suppose it kind of depends on the person and the situation. With my wife, I was very honest. With my parents, not so much. With some of my classmates, I was honest, but not with all of them for sure. Uh, when I finally went to be a youth pastor at this church, the pastor there was not intellectually sophisticated. He was not going to be a good dialogue partner. And I ended up finding another youth pastor at a Presbyterian church. He was, uh, didn't share my, all of my theological assumptions, but he liked to think deeply. And so we kind of started what we called the dead theologians club. And we'd get together once a month and read old theologians and, you know, argue about them and things. Um, it's a difficult question to answer because like, I don't want to give the impression that everything's hunky dory today. You know, it's not like everything is peaches and cream. It's, it's, uh, it's difficult even now in my life to think about the best ways that I ought to relate with the various communities I'm in. Some of it has to do with really foundational issues, like, you know, what I think about God. Others have to do with more social concerns. Um, 
you know, I'm an ordained elder in a conservative Christian denomination that has a view on LGBTQ issues that's very different from mine, and I could be expelled anytime. Um, so that's gonna that's an ongoing tension. Um, so there's there's lots of it's hard for me to answer that question with a nice neat answer. No, no, that's that's it's it's not expected. But thank you. That's I really appreciate your willingness to engage with that, Tom. Thank you. I, I appreciate that as well. That's uh, you know it, it's a deep answer to what's a tough question. There is always a tendency, I, I think, especially amongst evangelicals, to 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 have the right propositional answer wrapped in the right bow that consists of the right kind of biblical references <laughs> you know and, and relationships uh life the complexities thereof they just they just don't work out that way no and you know i, I gained some insight as when i eventually my wife and i have three daughters i gained some insight on questions about developmental readiness for certain kinds of issues and complexities you know when my kids are young, they don't have the cognitive ability to think abstractly. And so a lot of the things I say about God and the faith are fairly simple, fairly straightforward. But then as they get older, then, you know, I give them the complex stuff. Although in many of their cases, they were ready for that complex stuff when they were younger. But if I apply that to people more broadly, there are a lot of adults who have the theological sophistication of eight-year-olds. And it's not necessarily a loving thing for me to introduce abstract or abstract, not a good word. I'll just say sophisticated theological questions to someone who's operating at an eight-year-old level. So I have to, I have to think about what's appropriate for the person in the situation. And, and that, that can be dicey. I, I really like the the way that you you phrased that. You know, I've 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 tried to make peace over the years myself with conversations, recognizing that that the language that I that is used when wrestling through theological stuff is not necessarily helpful, and that and that there's there's different ways to answer things. You can answer it at a very simplistic level. You can answer it, you know, at increasing levels of sophistication based on. Near the development sta developmental stage of people, there's actually a um, a YouTube channel that I've seen that takes complex stuff related to like new physics and that, and then it'll answer something like gravity. You know, how would you answer it to an elementary school at an elementary level? How would you answer it at a um, at a later schooling level? How would you answer it to an undergrad? How would you dig into it as a, as a postgrad? You know, just for instance. So they, they do this four-tiered thing. And I, I, I've, I've only recently cottoned on to that. It's taken me very long, very long in life to realize that, you know, just because people love God or are deconstructing, it doesn't mean that they're ready just for any conversation or, or conversations at any level. So I, re I, I really like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that from you. I might not credit you for it, but this is the moment. <laughs> this is the moment. that <laughs> Feel free to steal. <laughs> <laughs> take us forward if you will so you're a youth pastor um with the the dead dead theologian society if I <laughs> that's fantastic i think there should be a chapter of that in every major city globally um, <laughs> and um 
and and please tell if you will tell us a little bit more about the ministry journey um kind of going forward from that space for me being a youth pastor was enjoyable but i realized that not only i personally wanted to have the opportunity to work with people asking really big and deep questions um, but there are certain stages in a typical person's life in which those questions become prominent those that stage is typically between 18 and 30 or 35 or something like that um, and so i thought you know i think i should look into trying to become a professor and work with students who were asking those questions. So I went away to seminary and got a seminary degree and got another master's and a PhD um, and eventually started teaching philosophy. During that time, um, I was introduced to a set of ideas that I now call open and relational theology. These ideas begin with assumptions about God being loving and not in control. They emphasize God's presence in the world, but also our inability to fully grasp God and therefore uh, necessity for us to be open to not only ideas in the arts and sciences, but in other faith traditions. Um, and this way of thinking helped me to answer the number one question that I was asking and most people who believe in God ask. And that's the question of why doesn't God stop the pointless pain, the unnecessary suffering, the genuine evils of the world. And um, I was working on that question for at least, oh, 20 years before I finally came to, um, what I find to be a satisfactory answer and have published it in several books. Um, so then I eventually uh, started teaching at the college level in philosophy and theology. And uh, today I, I teach, uh, I do a doctoral program. I direct doctoral students in open and relational thought. I think though, given your questions about my personal life, I probably ought to tell you a story uh, in my life that happened six years ago, or I guess it's actually began a few years before that. But I was forced out of my position as a theology professor. Um, I was, I, I have always been a person, well, let me back this up. Um, I made a decision in about the year 2000 that as a scholar, I was going to write some books aimed at the academy and some books aimed at the average person on the street. Um, and so if you look at my writing career, you'll see I kind of bounce back and forth between writing technical books and writing accessible ones. And that meant that many of my ideas gained wider exposure in the church. And because my ideas were thought of as progressive or liberal or whatever, there became pressure. I, I, I got lots of criticism and pressure. Some of it, you know, understandable. Some of it really mean-spirited. Um, but 
in the year, well, I got get get my years right. I guess it was 2013. Yeah, that sounds right. The um, president of my university required that I go through a trial. He called it an administrative inquiry, which was it was basically a heresy trial. He collected uh, 66 questions that I had to give a written answer to, and I wrote a hundred-page document in response to these things. And then I had to go to a couple in front of a couple of uh, leaders of the church and defend myself. Um, not a real pleasant experience, but uh, I made it through that without being claimed, deemed a heretic. <laughs> the people who read my material didn't agree with everything I said, but they said, you know, what he, what he says doesn't obviously lie out of bounds from our statements of faith. But um, the president really wanted to get rid of me because he was getting pressure from conservative donors and conservative pastors, etc. So he went ahead and laid me off anyway. Actually, first of all, what he did is he brought me in and told me uh, he was going to do a, another trial and, unless I left. And uh, he did that like in May of 2014. Yeah. And... Um, I said, I thought about it for a week and went back and said, I'm not going to leave. I'll do another trial. Um, so I expected that trial to be in the summer of 2014 and it never materialized. So the president told me to plan to teach in the fall. I did the, that through the fall, the winter, the spring. And then on May 1st of 2015, he put a note on my desk that said I'd been laid off. And he used a, um, he used a kind of a minor little statement in the faculty manual that said that if there's ever a dip in enrollment, then he can lay somebody off. And <laughs> he chose me, even though I was tenured and had more experience and yeah, all that sort of stuff. Anyhow, so I got laid off. Um, faculty rose up and gave him a no confidence vote. He, the president resigned within a month. Uh, but the trustees, there was a significant number of them who wanted me gone because of my more progressive views. And so I ended up working at a severance that allowed me to teach for a little while while I looked for another job. So I say all of that to say, um, I have gone through some very painful things in my life. So have my wife and my kids, my friends, my colleagues, because of the views that I have, uh, because some people think of them as being, um, oh, I don't know what the right word, they'd probably use the word heretical. I'd use the word unconventional. Um, and, so there have been some real consequences for my theology. What was kind of the follow-on from that process, Tom? I'm, I'm assuming that that, I mean, that, that must have instituted something. Now, actually, I want to take a step back, if I may, and just go, um, I mean, please feel free not to answer this question, but I'm, I'm continually fascinated by people who are able to to stand their ground in the face of such opposition. And, and that's what I hear coming through. It's part of what I hear coming through so strongly through that story. Um, 
and and I'm just wondering where was it that you drew strength, insight, energy from, in terms of that trial? Um, was was that very much on your mind at that point? And then obviously then there's the follow up of the of the second. You know, you might have to go through this again. Um, what was what was that like? If if my question's clear enough, and if you're willing to, to oh, go I'm in, quite there. willing. Yeah. Well, for me, the number one thing in my life, my primary purpose, as I see it, is to live a life of love. That's what matters most to me. And I think love involves acting intentionally in relationship with God and others to promote overall well-being. So what I try to do, whether something is difficult or easy, I try to ask the question, what would love compel me or require of me or ask of me in this situation? So when um, the president is trying to get rid of me, um, I'm asking the question, okay, what should I do that would promote overall well-being? Now, I think in that kind of scenario, what you want to do, at least what I think a person should do, is try to gauge and evaluate as best you can all the possible implications and, and uh, consequences. And um, uh, well, I'll just stop there that your actions could, could take. And that means asking other people how they see things because it's really easy for us in life to think that we know what's right and best, but we, you know, we see the world from our limited perspective. And so I ask my colleagues uh, at the university and other people, you know, I didn't tell everybody what was happening, but those that I did, I tried to get their wisdom. And throughout the process, I just kept believing that the common good, overall well-being uh, was more likely to be promoted if I stayed and, and was a professor there and fought against those who were trying to get rid of me. Um, so I think it helped that I've been trying to live a life of love for a long time and I've developed some kinds of habits. I think it helped that, you know, I wasn't 19, I was a little older and I'd seen a few things and I know how, you know, organizations, institutions, administrators can work and how they think. And so that helped me. It really helped that I had supportive friends and faculty. I mean, when this all happened, all the faculty in my school wrote a letter of support and, you know, they went in local media and newspapers and, you know, they were just, um, in fact, my, my oldest daughter was in college, in her last year of college when all of this went down, or at least the me getting laid off went down. And um, I remember worrying that she would kind of walk away from Christianity because of what had happened to me. But the truth is that the vast majority of people she knew and people on campus and the community were wildly supportive of me. And so, um, you know, I could easily just say there are a few people who wanted me out and those people had power. <laughs> yeah. If the system wants you out, you're out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I, and 
I guess there's more I think about your question and, and why I was able to do the things I did. There are just so many factors. You know, I have a wife who is supportive. It was so tough on her. It's still tough on her. But I think um, other people in that situation, their partners would have said, nope, we're checking out. We're gone. You know, <laughs> they probably would have not stood with their partner or at least suggested that their partner not stand up and but my wife wasn't like that um, so I had a lot of factors in my favor I think to to stand for what I thought was loving and the journey from there to where you at now and the role that you that you're playing well it's really hard to find a job teaching theology these days <laughs> 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 and um so, you know, I went uh, five years without having a job. In the meantime, I'm writing books. I started to make a living speaking at, on campuses and conference and churches, et cetera. So I, I, um, that's a very hard thing to do to make a living speaking, but I was able to do it uh, for a few years there. And eventually this opportunity came up to start a doctoral program in open and relational theology and work with people who uh, are want to have their their doctoral degree, and so that's been a real joy. And that's what I do primarily now. Um, once the pandemic has lessened a bit, I'll probably start doing some more speaking. And of course, I'm always writing, but um, that's what I do. Is this an open, uh, not just an open and, and relational uh, the theological space, but is it a sufficiently open and a radical space for a progressive like you? <laughs> <laughs> you mean my the new institution I'm with? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The new institution I'm with doesn't have any of those doctrinal issues. So okay. yeah, I, I have lots and lots of leeway to do what I want. <laughs> Lovely. You know, it just strikes me as I, as I think about your story there, um, Tom, is, is this, it's so beautiful for me, this sense of grounding in the, in the experience that then happens, the grounding in, you know, you talk about, you'd already lived for a while in this sense of, of living relationally, living around the idea. I thought for a second you were going to whip out that wristband what would jesus do <laughs> think for a moment but I, I loved how you phrased that what what would love require compel is oh what a beautiful word to put in there what would love compel me to do and it, it it just strikes me around both the the lead up into the incident the incident i'm starting to give this quotation marks let me retract that <laughs> in, into into what happened in the story as you the, told it the, the process yeah yeah it's, it's it's grounded in this practice and this way of being and even as you tell the story what really strikes me is that it plays out even even as such in interacting with your wife and use the word wisdom it's so wonderful to hear somebody throw the mm. word wisdom around so so liberally in the interaction with your wife with your colleagues with people you know being in support of you and um it's it's wonderful to hear that coming from such a grounded space at least that's what i'm hearing through the story of having lived some of this out and it it's it just strikes me very deeply that that has been the process as opposed to it just being a very abstract space that looks great on paper uh, am, am i kind of reading that well in terms of the stories you tell it this is this is a way of being not just some wonderful abstract concept 
Yes, yeah. I mean, I want to be a person who lives with integrity. And I think of his integrity as the, the idea that you have some central theme or central conviction. And for me, that's the conviction of love. And you then orient yourself around that central conviction in such a way that you try to act and think and respond that in a way that's congruent with that central conviction. Um, you know, and the way I interpret scripture, I think God is a God of love. I think Jesus reveals that better than anyone. I want to follow Jesus. Um, so all of these, when I say love is central, I think you could do that from another religious tradition. I'm not saying Christians are the only ones you can love. But for me, I see it grounded best in this witness of Jesus of Nazareth. Thank you for telling that story. That, that, that was really phenomenal to, to take us through those moments in your life. I just want to acknowledge that both the holiness movements and the evangelical movements are, are not well known for love. <laughs> and and, and there's, a, there's, <laughs> there's a bit of a translational gap between the, the four spiritual laws and, and the love of God. Although the four spiritual laws, <laughs> it, it's got an idea of love uh, that I think is quite uh, dysfunctional and abstracted. Uh, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if we if we could um, pry and poke just along these grounds, just just for a little bit on, on the difference between the two, because it seems to me that there's 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 a lot of backstory <laughs> in between these two bookends, in a sense. I, I don't know if it's fair to lift the the Campus Crusade uh, thing in the Four Spiritual Laws, but I, I think it's just because one that I you know it, it's also linked to my, my my past but this link to the to the love thing there's a gap there you know um and I, I just love to hear your thoughts on it because because this this model of the sinful model of salvation is so integral to evangelicalism and to christianity in general and i think in the west it, it, it plays such a prominent role in you know um both catholicism and protestantism after christendom that that you know and yet campus crusade is summarized in a nice way um and um you know uh and it's quite an accessible way to put those four spiritual laws out there so um <laughs> so, so <laughs> my, my rambling is getting it going if you just gave us a neat summary of them and and then dove into the gap um you know if i uh, if i could just throw you in the deep spiritual end. laws or summary of how i think about love well, well, a bit of both. The, the summary of the four spiritual laws, how you think about love, and, and how do you, like, how, how did you in your journey bridge the gap? I, I, hear you, I hear you almost having this epiphany early on, um, and I don't know if there's a link between these, but, but I feel that there, there's a gap in the four spiritual laws in relation to this love and the way you're framing love and putting it forward. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually in the just about finished with a book. Uh, actually, uh, by the time this airs, it will be finished, uh, in which uh, I talk a little bit about the four spiritual laws, but especially about the radically different way I think of God's love than the way a lot of Christians, especially professional theologians have talked about God love, God's love. Uh, the professional theologians, and, and I guess I shouldn't say just professional, but a lot of theologians have said that God is a loving God, but God has no emotions. 
God is not affected one bit by what we do. So anything when we say that God is compassionate isn't really compassion for God. It's just what we imagine God is. Yeah. They we, said we're, that we're God anthropomorphizing is, God in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. They've said that God has omnipotent power, which means that God either caused all evil or at least could have stopped all evil if God wanted to. So this God permits pointless pain. This God gets so angry at people for their sin, sends them to hell for eternity. I mean, by the time you end up talking about that God being loving, it sounds like God's more of a dick than anything else. Mm, Nobody wants (laughs) Yeah, that is brilliantly put. Yeah, nobody should want to spend eternity with that God. It just makes no sense whatsoever. So um, early on in my life, I had these inclinations that love was right. I got some of them from the Bible. Um, I got some of them from my parents, I suspect. I got a lot of them from rock and roll. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Awesome. There's just something, I, I just knew that there was something about love that was right, but I, it ta- it's taken me a long time to kind of maneuver and, and, and work through all the complexities and the, the ways people tried to say God was loving, but then ended up presenting a God who killed his son. And, you know, I just like, it just made no sense to me. And it took me a while to come to the place where today I think God is genuinely loving everyone all the time, not just humans, but every creature on the planet. This love is inherently, necessarily uncontrolling. So God never manipulates. God didn't kill Jesus. God doesn't send anybody to hell for eternity. This is the kind of God that I want to hang out with now and in the afterlife. And that view is to me so, so um, appealing, so winsome that I I feel good about living life and I feel just fine about talking with others about God and Jesus because it's, it's a lovable God. The classic notion of creation and creation, you know, out of nothingness um, is almost the sense that there was, there was God and for some reason God created, but I don't get the link between creation and love in that sense. It's something that I've, I've chewed through and I've, I've wrestled with and I've landed in this place where I've gone well, on one hand, there's God that who relates as creator and sustainer, uh, but that's not a relational relationship. That's a, a relationship with everyone, everywhere, every when, every why, every how, et cetera, et cetera. God is as close to my cell phone on the table as the glass of water to Satan, uh, to me, to you, to the creatures, to bacteria, to disease, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's indiscriminate. The, you know, it's, it makes provision for good and evil uh, and, and is, is, is a creator and sustainer, the enabler almost of the sandbox of both. And so, so, so there's that. And, and then on the other hand, I've, had the, I've held the notion that God relates in person. There's this thing of drawing near in person and withdrawing. And I feel like in some ways the evangelical backstory, the sinful plan B theology that we've got cuts against what I read in scripture and it cuts against my understanding of God because I feel like there's 
there isn't a there isn't a f- sufficient link and so on one hand i'm landing this place where i'm starting to tease out ideas where i'm where i'm where i'm suggesting heretical things like reading genesis through the eyes of job <laughs> yeah, <I love> it. <laughs> of, of, of god sending his satan to tempt humanity into what god has for them and that not being a plan b but a transition from naivety to the sandbox of creation for us to grow and become like god and, and from that perspective, I, I feel like the classic models of, of salvation and understanding of it just doesn't make sense to me. And, and I've been struggling with that. But then um, I don't know how I've only recently discovering you. Um, maybe it's because you needed to get, <laughs> maybe it's just because of the, the transition and role that you have or, or, or whatever it is. But I've, I've recently just discovered this, this work and, and yeah, you come along and you put forward that, that God didn't create ex nihilo, God created out of love. Can you perhaps pick up on that? You don't necessarily have to interact with my own heretical ideas because I don't necessarily want you to be associated with them. I'm not sure what the implications could be you know, in terms of your, your life and work, you know, believe me, <laughs> I'm sure that any negative implications would be more on your side <laughs> associating with me than, than vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. But, uh, well, but this thing of, of God creating out of love, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a few people who say God creates out of love. And oftentimes when they say that they're not real clear about what that means. I think what they mean is that God's motive for creating was love. God was motivated to be generous, kind, gracious, helpful, all kinds of positive things to others. And so in their view, God was once all alone, maybe in Trinity, but all alone without a world. And God, motivated by love, decided to create others who could be the recipients of these positive, generous, helpful things. Um, so I, I, I affirm that motivation aspect, but if creating out of love means love is a bunch of stuff that's around that God is gonna picks up and molds like clay, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't think love is a substance. Um, and what got me to thinking about why I should reject creation out of nothing was actually the questions of evil. And that is, if God has the kind of capacity to bring something from absolute nothingness, then why doesn't God do that a whole lot more often right now to prevent horrible things from happening? I mean, like right now, the whole world is uh, dealing with a pandemic caused by a COVID-19. Well, if God can create something out of nothing, why didn't once that uh, virus mutated in whatever way it did, God instantaneously create a steel box around that virus so it didn't go anywhere? Or why doesn't God do something now to somehow alter genetic structures in the way that no one acts to actually get the vaccine, but God just unilaterally creates something brand new and puts it in every human? I mean, there's, when, once you start going down the path of thinking of all the things a God who can create something out of nothing can do, then like all the problem of evil becomes even more difficult for you. <laughs> so um, I said to myself, do I have to think that at the beginning of our universe, 13.8 billion years ago, God created from absolute nothingness? 
Well, the Bible surely doesn't require me to think that. In fact, uh, there's no biblical passage that explicitly says God creates out of nothing. The closest we get is a, a, a text in 2 Maccabees that isn't even in the Protestant canon, and that one isn't unambiguous. So the, the Bible's talking about, you know, like 1 Peter says, God creates out of water, or, you know, all the analogies are God creating out of something. So I didn't have biblical any kind of biblical requirements to believe in creation out of nothing. And then I started looking at the history of the doctrine and it turns out it was first initiated or proposed by a couple of Gnostics and Gnostics are people who think that the world is inherently evil. And so these guys thought, well, a pure and loving God wouldn't want to mess around with evil. So better have them create out of nothing. And that just happens to fit, later Christians views of God's omnipotence. And so then that idea takes hold and is so widespread today. So you know, I could go on and on. I've got a, a book half written on this topic, so I won't go into details, but let me make it a little bit practical to conclude. I mentioned that uh, these Gnostics thought that uh, a holy God wouldn't want to be creating out of, you know, unholy matter and so god created out of nothing and we've talked a little bit about canvas crusade and the four spiritual laws the second law of the four spiritual laws says this sin separates us from god and on that little page you probably have seen it there's a picture of a person standing on one side of a, a one hill there's a valley between it that says your sin and god's on the other side and so we're relationally and even spatially, according to this picture, separated from God. Well, does that make any sense if God is actually omnipresent? Does that make any sense at all if God truly loves us and wants relationship? So to say that God is separated from us because of sin, that just makes no sense to me. If God is truly present and loving at all times, and God is going to be with us even when we're at our absolute worst. Now, that doesn't mean we, you know, sin is nothing. It doesn't mean that sin is something you just sort of, uh, you know, forget about. Sin is real, I think, and it has real consequences. But it doesn't mean God just can't be in our presence. You know, that's what John Calvin thought. He thought that God was a holy God who doesn't want to be in the presence of sin. And it's just so different from a God of love, at least as I envision it, and the way I think the biblical writers talk about it. One of the early strong counters I, I feel to to that as the as the classic spiritual law is uh, Cain and Abel, where we don't know um, most of the conversation that takes place with Abel, but we do know some of the conversation or more of the conversation that takes place with Cain, and that's certainly of God, in the sense of yes, being around indiscriminately as creator and sustainer. Of course, you know. That, that that dimension but in the other dimension there's a very clear I've, I've drawn near to this person i'm dialoguing with them within what is going on within their heart and mind and so this notion of of there being intra and interpersonal evil uh natural evil you know uh, systemic evil etc etc all those things you, you know this 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 the sandbox you know from that campus crusade perspective and the classical evangelical perspective salvation is plan b as opposed to this is god's plan a 
and and this is in continuity with what God has, even though you know there's the looking forward to the future stuff and you know the new creation and all that kind of stuff there as well. And, and I feel like there's 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 a lot there's a lot more room for fruitful and explorative conversations than than I feel like in 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 my past I've been allowed to have. And even in my present, <laughs> definitely having conversations with people at the moment. I, I just came from a brutal one where I wasn't I wasn't allowed to explore an idea without triggering people really badly. <laughs> you, you, you know, and so that that seems a lot more common. Well, the Eastern Church has a more uh, what I'm I'm intuiting is your Plan A versus Plan B kind of notion of salvation. You know, they don't have the hard fall of Adam and Eve and everything going south because of you know, eating from the fruit, they've got a more of a maturation notion and that God is uh, helping us to grow toward Christ-likeness, theosis, etc. Um, and that makes a lot more sense to me. Um, I don't take the Genesis story of Adam and Eve as historically or literally true, but I think it tells us something <gasps> metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Better not have this interview on air. <laughs> Can, sorry, Tom, you've crossed a line here. I'm, I'm just going to have to call it. <laughs> sorry. Please continue. <laughs> I love it. We, we, we're with you. I think we, you don't have to take it as historically or literally true in order to take it seriously. Right, right. I think it... It, it points to this relational, uh, I like to use the word estrangement, this relational problem between us and God. So uh, as I said earlier, I think God is always with us, always relating us to us. And therefore sin never separates us from God, never ends a relationship with God. But sin does make that relationship estranged. Do you guys have that word in your context? Like if if a couple's having problems, you say they're estranged. Um, and so I think that's a good way to talk about it, that when my sin not only estranges me to God, but estranges me to others, creation, and myself in the sense that the relationship is not the best that it could be because I've done something that is relationally harmful. So I take all that seriously. And I think that the Adam and Eve story is a metaphorical way to talk about how our decisions have negative implications, negative consequences, not only to others and ourselves, but even to God. I think God actually hurts when we sin. I, I totally agree with you there. I think it's not just Jesus as incarnate that has got a hurtability, um, you know, component. You know, you can, you can, you can punch him, you can spit on him, you can. Um, humiliate him you know you can crucify him you can kill him there's there's a hurtability component there and the the i think the old word is the s the aseity of god god's complete or independence impassibility impassibility oh. yeah 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 completely kill keeps god as as completely self-sufficient immovable um unhurtable there's no hurtability to god there's no and in that sense there's no vested interest Whereas in my mind, there's a risk component to love, there's an investment component, and there's a deep hurtability. Mm. Yeah, you, you can't experience love unless the one person can be hurt, or unless both parties can be hurt and can, ex can experience lack, can experience estrangement. I mean, one of the, 
the, um, the, the openings to a prayer that I really loved, I came across through Richard Raw's writing. He opens a prayer, all vulnerable God. And that really struck me. He's, and he says he's offering that in contrast to the almighty God, you know, within the more traditional denominations. Mm, I love um, that. Yeah, and that really struck me, all vulnerable God. That's, that's, that's a beautiful way of positioning it. That's at the very heart of relational theology right there. The vulnerable God, God who suffers with us. Um, and, and there's kind of two senses that for me, this is really powerful. One is that when I'm going through really tough times, when I've been hurt, when I'm dealing with, I don't know, addictions or accidents or bad relationships with others, that there is a God who really suffers with me. And that that sense of empathy, divine empathy is so powerful. But there's another sense that's rarely talked about. And that's the idea that when I say I love God, I'm not just saying I think God's great, I desire God. But if I'm saying I love God, I actually affect God's well-being. And I tell you, that is like a really supercharging kind of notion in my life. Like I used to go to church and sing songs and praises of God. And I think to myself, you know, what am I doing here? Like, what <laughs> is this, is this yeah. kind of just like our attempt to remind ourselves of the divine attributes, you know, holy God, loving God, powerful God, you know, just come together to remind us who God is. I mean, there's a place for that. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just, but I just thought, you know, I could remind myself of God attributes in other, other ways. <laughs> but then, then I started understanding God as a relational God of love who's actually affected by what I do. So that when I'm in the midst of church and sometimes I'm very demonstrative when I worship, that God is actually getting jacked up because I'm getting jacked up that like what I'm doing has a real effect on the God of the entire universe. That's an empowering thought. That, that is actually an incredible way to put it. It, it goes way beyond that. It's the same, the same thing that I've had, I have where I speak of, well, it's reciprocal really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 but 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 in fairness I've, I've i've been um uh racing through a lot of this as well because the we're born late into a story of you know the big story of humanity and history and we're going to leave before the conclusion so we're going to retire early and somewhere in the midst of this there's this god thing out there and and do we necessarily trust god do we know god I think I think that there's a definite difference between knowing about God and, and relating to the idea of God and drilling down into this thing of going, well, if it's relational, if it's uh, um, reciprocal, <laughs> if it's if if there's the, the potential to actually move God and for for growth in a relationship towards intimate connection, why the heck is that not what we do when we do church and do Christianity? <laughs> That that's just a disconnect for me. My favourite one of those is uh, is when I join a prayer meeting, and uh, everyone's shouting at the top of their lungs at the ceiling. Sometimes, unfortunately, my cynicism really kicks in, and I think that's about all. <laughs> that's about all that's happening. It's just shouting at the ceiling. <laughs> but but in terms of this relational interaction, 
it just over time it just started to grow on me this this sense of irony of shout 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 amen and then everyone walks out <laughs> just go i mean if my four-year-old comes into a room and shouts at me and then walks out like hey <laughs> come back here. like what 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 do you want to talk about why did you shout at me what's going on i'd really love you dad and then he runs out i'm like no 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 can I tell you that too? <laughs> and and that's that's one of the spaces that I, I feel as though I see it um, just so clearly. And, and I think it's 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 all over the show and how we do this church thing, you know, Tim, and as you say, and we've talked about it often. I, I'd love to get a couple more of your thoughts around that, Tom, in terms of the these these communal gatherings and 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 that relating to God, relating with God as opposed to just kind of gathering to to shout at the ceiling. Well, I, I appreciate I appreciate you talking about some of your skepticism because I, you know, I think I think not everybody goes to church and thinks deeply about what's being said, but there are a significant number of us who do, and um, you know, I don't want to be the theology police every time I go to church. I don't want the the minister to be intimidated. You know, the theologian just walked in. I've had ministers say that to me. Believe me. Um, but one of the things I do that I bet you guys do also is that I analyze the lyrics in the song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I've come up with a kind of a system of how I re relate to these. And my wife loves to actually watch me worship and sing. Um, my system is this. If there are lyrics that I buy into and I agree with, I'm going to sing them with gusto and, you know, if I'm led to raise my hand and whatever, you know, I'm going to give it my all. If there are lyrics that I clearly don't agree with, I shut up. I don't sing them. I just stand there. And my wife likes to watch me to see, like, she'll see lines coming up. She's pretty sure I don't agree with. And she'll look <laughs> it over to see, to see if I'm singing them or not. And, and I'm not. <laughs> and then there are some lines that don't, clearly fit in the stuff I'm gung-ho about or clearly in the stuff that I don't like. And I sing those because I feel like I'm a part of a community that's bigger than me as an individual. And I'll let the community kind of carry me along in this space where I'm not sure what's going on. Because I, I, I don't want to give up my theological convictions in the name of a community. Like some people will do that. They'll say, well, you know, you're part, you're not an individual, you're part of a group. And if the group believes X theology, then you have to also. And I say, crap, there's no way I'm going to do that. However, I also don't want to think that everybody in the whole community has to believe in God exactly the same way I do. There's got to be some diversity. And so on those points, when I don't have a strong conviction one way or the other, I'll just go along with the community and maybe something will change in the future. And, you know, maybe those lyrics will, will go into one of the other categories eventually. <laughs> sure. That, that resonates so deeply with me because I've had a very similar process. Um, I led worship for a while in, uh, in our current church. We haven't been to church in a year with all the COVID and all sorts of stuff like that. But before then, was very active, you know, every second Sunday I'm up on stage and, and there's a lot of this thinking process going on in the background. And, and often I would lead with a, a good friend of mine. Um, and so we would kind of switch. And so, you know, she'd pick a song and I'd pick a song and she'd pick a song and I'd pick a song. And our theological perspectives are somewhat different. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, 
And yet I could also feel this sense of, okay, I'm, I'm not going to sing this chorus. I just, I, I can't have any more of those. Woohoo! And then God, the father, got a hammer and hit him on the head. Kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough of that. Yeah. And so totally I would just pull back from the mic and, you know, do what I needed to do on the keyboard. Uh, but other times, and, and I think, again, what I'm sensing is you just grounding this in this idea of relationship. I could sense she'd picked a song that meant something to her or somehow something was going on with between her and the congregation and there was meaning happening there. And the lyrics were in that sort of gray area that you talk about where I'm not, you know, I wouldn't have chosen the song myself, but I can't not bring myself. I, I, I'm, I'm not wanting to not sing it. And I'm not going to bring myself to sing every, sing with everything I have, but I could sense there's something going on. And so I was drawn into that relationally. And, and over time, it emerged more and more and more. That's, that's what's actually happening in that moment. Um, so I, I appreciate you putting that out there. That's a, it's such a helpful paradigm with which to see what's going on there. Mm, yeah, you're welcome. I, I don't, it sounds like, well, I come from more low church kind of scenarios, you know, uh, and, the church that I currently attend has begun to include more stereotypically high church things. Like, you know, we have the Eucharist every Sunday. Well, when the pandemic's not on, we'd have the Eucharist on every Sunday. And, um, you know, we, we follow lectionary somewhat. And, and we, at the end of our reading of scripture, uh, we used to have a line that's very common in more liturgical settings at the end of the scripture, someone would say the word of God for the people of God. And then people would say, amen. I'm, I am convinced that we shouldn't call the Bible the word of God for about six or seven different reasons. Um, one of them being that I always felt like when we said the word of God, it was like these words we just said are exactly what God wanted. And sometimes the words we read were just, I thought, wrong. <laughs> like, I think <laughs> some of the things in the Psalms that describe God in certain ways, I just think, you know, I just can't believe that based on what I think of Jesus and other things. Like, and so it just rubbed me the wrong way that we always said the word of God, especially because I think Jesus is more accurately called the word of God. So I talked to my pastor about it. And uh, she has changed it now so that we don't say the word of God. Uh, she, we say something like, these words have been given to us to help us to discover God or something like that. It's, it's much, uh, uh, much better in my view. So that's another way that in the corporate setting, I'm trying to, as best I can, work out my theology in a way that's loving, but also respects my intellectual questions and uh, objections to things that I find from time to time. Mm. I, I love that. I mean, it's, um, you know, the alternative is getting one of those, uh, th those vests and uh, you can print theological heavyweight in and you could put, put the Bible on the end of a, of a, <laughs> of an elastic, <laughs> you know, and start swinging it around. But I mean, no one, no one really wants that. I, you, you know, I I haven't always found Christianity to be um, intellectually engaging and respectful. And there's always been a weird um, tension between the head and the heart that has never made sense to me. That has always seemed quite forced. One of the things that I love that just comes across so clearly as you as you speak and when you write is that 
there isn't that division. <laughs> I'm happy that comes across because that's the way I try to live my life. I mean, I don't follow Jesus despite my intellectual problems. I follow Jesus because I think it's intellectually rigorous and robust. And what, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you guys can relate somewhat to this at least. When I, as a person who really care about the life of the mind, look went looking for other Christians who care about the life of the mind, many of them were in what I'll call classical theological traditions that portrayed God in the ways that I mentioned earlier that I just can't stand. So that I thought to myself, well, oh, this sounds like in order to be an intellectually sophisticated Christian, you have to believe these um, doctrines and use this really technical language. And, and at the end of the day, it's just hard to swallow for me. Um, I've decided, no, there's, there's actually very intellectually sophisticated and justifiable grounds to believe in a God who's loving, omnipresent, who's not impassable, not immutable, not omnipotent, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm looking forward to when these next books of yours come out. It sounds like you've got several unwritten and uh and to me they they're, they're appealing like like i've got a in south africa we've got a a, a cultural uh a thing that we do that's very social where we get together and we make a fire and we cook cook meat on it in a real old school caveman style we call it brying uh, i think in the united states and elsewhere the word barbecue is used but i don't know if it's quite the same and, and and when i hear some of those things you're putting on the table it's it's got the same sense of appeal in me as the thoughts of, of the steak I want to slap on the fire on Saturday and sink my teeth into. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm always writing. Um, by the time this comes out, I'll have a book that's called Open and Relational Theology that's really an introduction and in, in easy to understand language to the general framework that I've been talking about. And uh, a, a book I wrote a couple of years ago called God Can't, has really sold very well and helped people to think through the questions of suffering in a way that uh, most people have not thought about those. Um, so I'm, I'm writing some books for kind of a wide audience. And then, you know, I write some books for the academics too. I think what, what we'll do just listeners, as you listening in here, we'll, we'll pop those, those notes will be in the, in the show notes around the books, publishers, et cetera, and, and probably a link to Amazon or something where you can get them. What's, what's the name of the upcoming book? Tom, do you want to tell us a little? Or books? You know, it's kind of got a boring title. It's just Open and Relational Theology, colon, an introduction. So yeah, it's not, uh, yeah, not real flashy, um, but it's really, so many people ask me, what is this open and relational theology stuff you're talking about? And the books that I can point them to, you know, they probably need a, a degree in theology to really understand. And I thought, you know, I can, uh, at least I'm going to try to talk about these sophisticated ideas in ways that just most people can understand and present this vision of God that I think is not only more attractive, but I think it coheres best with the main thrust of scripture too. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to to reading that and digging into it. Um, Tom, I, 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 this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it too. I really appreciate the depth and the vulnerability with which you've spoken. And 
you know, the fluid interplay between the personal and the idea worlds, you know. So thank you so much for that. I, I really hope that this is the first of many conversations. Uh, perhaps you'll 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 reflect on this and think, my goodness, those those heretics. I mean, what a, what is an urban mystic anyway? <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> well, you've you've heard what I think, so you know that uh, I'm not exactly uh, I don't know conservative, straight laced, traditional, right? So <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 for me, this has just been a fantastic and and just privileged uh, connection with you and insight into yourself your journey some of your thinking and uh you know i i'd love to have a few deep dive conversations uh in, in future if that's possible but but for that's now thank you cool excellent but yeah thank you so much yeah from my side too thank you tom i'm, I'm gonna i'm just gonna say ditto to what tim shared it was a it was a real honor to be in conversation with you and so grateful that you can that we can share this conversation with our listeners. Thank you for your time. It's very generous. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. I've enjoyed it.